Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We have breaking news, a CNN exclusive. Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff for Donald Trump, has been subpoenaed by the special counsel. Meadows was in the room for most of the key events on January 6th and the days before. So we have more on that in a moment. Plus, what's going on with that Ohio toxic train derailment? The railroad officials behind that toxic train derailment just backed out of a town hall meeting tonight because of what they say are threats to their employees. But people in the town of East Palestine are demanding answers, and they say they are getting sick. Are my kids safe? Are the people safe? Is the future of this community safe? And another close call on the runway. We're just learning of a jet and a cargo plane almost colliding last month in Honolulu. Why are these near disasters happening? Are we getting less safe in the sky? And on a lighter note, the professional baseball player who walked away from a multi-million dollar career to live on a sailboat in the Caribbean. He says he's stepping away from consumption and competition and more money making. So what's your magical number to walk away from it all? Our panel takes that on. But let's start with our breaking news. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. He has our exclusive on the Mark Meadows subpoena. Evan, what are you learning about this tonight? Well, Allison, uh, Mark Meadows has received a subpoena from Special Counsel Jack Smith. Now, he's doing two investigations. Uh, one of them, obviously, is the January 6th investigation. Uh, he's also doing one into the uh, alleged mishandling of, of classified, informa- uh, classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Obviously, Mark Meadows, because he was chief of staff, was uh, a key witness to a lot of the things that Donald Trump was doing to try to remain in power after losing the 2020 election. He was on that infamous phone call with uh, Georgia officials trying to figure out how to find more votes. He he was there uh, helping uh, Trump, trying to pressure the Justice Department, trying to pressure members of Congress to try to help him again overturn the the, uh, the election uh, results. And so, what we expect now to happen is that, uh, you know, Meadows, because of his seniority in, uh, as, a, as an aide to the former president, is likely to raise the issue of executive privilege, which means that we might see some litigation between uh, Trump and, and, and Meadows as they try to fight off what the Justice Department is trying to get from him, which includes documents and testimony, Allison. Evan, also tell us about that you have this new information on some secret court battles the special counsel, Jack Smith, is locked in. I guess they're not that secret. What do you know? <laughs> well, they're not. Well, they, they are secret. But uh, thankfully, we have uh, Casey Gannon, who sits at the courthouse and, and watches these lawyers come in and out uh, as they try to fight these battles. And we know of at least eight of them, Allison, uh, that have to do with efforts by Trump and his allies to try to uh, resist providing information that the special counsel is trying to get as part of this uh, very sprawling investigation. One of them is involves Evan Corcoran, who we talked about just in the last couple of days. Uh, he got a subpoena. He's a f- lawyer for the, for, for the former president. And uh, Trump is trying to shield, obviously, and, and Evan Corcoran is trying to resist uh, providing some information about what he told, what he talked to Trump about regarding these, uh, these classified documents. And a number of other, de- of, 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 of other uh, litigation like this that we know is going on behind the scenes. The question for the Justice Department is, you know, why does this have to be secret? Obviously, given the, the great importance of, of, these, uh, of these fights, and, you know, one of the things they're telling the judge, Allison, is that because of the great public interest, that's the reason why it has to remain secret. OK. And Evan, also, we're hearing that the FBI searched the University of Delaware 
for Biden documents? What do we know about this? Right, so many things happening. Uh, in the case of Joe Biden, uh, the, we've learned of two additional searches that were done at the University of Delaware, two different uh, searches in two locations at the University of Delaware. Uh, sources telling uh, Paula Reed that the, uh, the documents uh, that were uh, retrieved and taken back by the FBI are now being reviewed. At least from the initial look at them, there was no uh, outward, no sign that they were uh, that they bore any classified markings. So that's good news for the uh, president. Obviously, he's he's got a special counsel who's looking at documents that have been found at his home as well as that uh, private office here in Washington. A uh, lot more that has to be done in that investigation, Allison. Okay, Evan Perez, thank you very much for bringing us all of that breaking news tonight. Sure. Now let's get to the toxic chemical crisis tonight in Ohio following that train derailment 12 days ago. Joining me now is Nate Velez. He had to leave his home and his business after the chemical spill and is currently living in an Airbnb. Nate, thanks so much for being here. So just tell us what has your neighborhood, your house, what's it been like for the past 12 days? Um, well, not great. <laughs> there, uh, most people didn't want to go home, but they, you know, they had to. So all the people who had to go home were complaining of smells and pains in their throat, headaches, sickness. And I, I luckily I haven't gone back, but I did, you know, to live, but I've gone back a few times and it, it does, it, the smell makes you sick, hurts your head and everyone is, you know, they're miserable. The whole town is, is miserable and that's the best way to describe it. And you live less than half a mile from there and you've had to go back to check some things. And I understand that you went back today and it was really hard. I mean, it was physically hard and it was emotionally hard for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had a rough day today. You know, we're uh, staying in these Airbnbs and, you're, you know, it's not like a hub. You can't just like get one whenever you want. And um, so you have to fill in the gaps where you can't get an Airbnb. So we're trying to find you know, these dates and line the dates up. And then it's been two weeks now and we have no plans of going back to our house. But then we start to look at it. And we're like, okay, you know, the money's going to run out by this date. And we still have to pay for that house that we don't want to live in. So it was you know, everything kind of, and then we, you know, there's all, all there's so many things to figure out and it's not just me. It's, you know, it's an entire town. And then, you know, we're all excited for this town hall meeting and it's just a slap in the face because the people who put us out were too afraid to show up to the meeting yeah. that they are the cause of. Yeah, let's talk about that. So the railroad, the officials from the railroad did not show up at the town mm -hmm. hall meeting tonight because they said that their employees are getting threats. So they decided to skip yeah. it. Um, I have a little bit of sound from what happened. Here's what the mayor said at the town hall meeting tonight. We're here for answers. The railroad did us wrong. So far, they've worked with us and they're fixing it. But if that stops, I will guarantee you, I will be the first one in line to fight that. So what the mayor, the message the mayor had was that they've worked with us so far and they're fixing it. Do you have confidence in that? Mm -hmm. um, I have confidence in the mayor doing the best he can. I don't have any confidence in the railroad or anyone affiliated with them or anyone they hire. And that's the whole thing. They tell us it's safe to go back and they determine that based on 
findings and data from companies that they hired. The same people that crashed the train into the town are the same, you know, hired the people to tell them, yeah, it's okay to go into your house. It's just, it's, you don't need to be a scientist to know, you don't have to prove anything to know that when you walk into your home or your business, you shouldn't feel like sick. It's just like, I don't know, how, 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 how can I make it any simpler, you know? So when the governor, Mike DeWine, tweeted earlier tonight, new water testing results show no detection of contaminants in East Palestine's municipal water system. With these test results, Ohio EPA is confident that the municipal water is safe to drink. Do you, does that comfort mm-hmm. you? Well, no. I mean, okay, it was, they got the test results today. So great, fantastic. But yesterday, there was 3,500 dead fish in the water. You know, how, how would anyone feel confident about that? Even yesterday, the governor himself said, you know, yeah, the testing's good so far, but just in case, drink bottled water. So he ain't that, you know, that's the thing. All the people who say it's okay aren't the people who have to drink it or sleep in it or live in it. It's like, I have no idea how to do your job, but my clipboard says you're doing it wrong, you know? Um, Nate, you have two kids. Um, we have a cute Halloween picture yeah. of these guys. You have a nine-year-old and an 18-month-old. Mm-hmm. What's the deal? Are they going to school? Yeah. What's How are they surviving this? That, see, that's the thing. No, luckily, Cam, the baby, she's just happy with, you know, whatever. <laughs> but the um, my son, you know, yeah, he misses school, but he hasn't gone back yet. They tried to, half the kids who went back, uh, like, in, in, you know, to these Palestinian schools, we're getting rashes and being sick. Just today, a friend of mine, because I have a business in town, so I know a lot of the town, and they, um, one of my customers and friends, his daughter, he posted a video of her coming up from school today. She was beet red, and he had a live video of her puking. And it wasn't like, that's not just like a one-time deal. There was like a couple of the kids posted today and yesterday, throwing up, sick, rash. So they're pulling them back out of school. Yeah, that's no so good. I don't want to take them back, you know, but you feel, I feel forced. Like, okay, well, if we run out of money, we, you know, technically we still own this house. It's just eventually going to kill us. So what do you do? You have to help this. I feel like I'm backed against the wall and I'm, like my life has been literally railroaded. Uh, I take the pun. Um, Nate, we'll try to get you some answers tonight. We'll stick on this, and we're, we're going to try to get you some answers, in fact, right now. Nate, thanks so much for thinking of you. Uh, thanks for sharing the story. And, of course, we'll check back with you. Thank you. All right, here with me in studio now is CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir and Jane Conroy. She's an attorney who is now representing hundreds of residents in that community in a class action lawsuit against Norfolk Southern Railroad. Great to have you both. Jane, let me start with Thank you. you. Sure. Um, so you're representing hundreds of people now in this community. Do they, have, do they share similar stories? What do they want out of this class action lawsuit? I don't even know that they're thinking so much about the class action lawsuit right now, but I think they're thinking about the things that Nate said. What about their kids? What about the water? What's happening to their lives? What about their livelihoods, their homes that Where they, are they own? Living? Everywhere. Hotels, Airbnbs, family members that are putting them up places. And some people we know are back in their homes because they have livestock or crops that they have to deal with. So it's a mixed bag. But there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of concern. And there's always that question of how are we going to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, but that's not helping 
right now. That's not helping Nate today. Is there anything that can help him today? Maybe. I think there could be some efforts that could be taken to try to help assist with housing and those types of things. But we didn't, the, the railroad didn't even show up at the meeting. So it's a little you, hard to have those conversations. What do you think about that? So there was a town hall meeting tonight. The residents were going to be able to voice their concerns. And then the Norfolk Southern said that their employees were getting too many threats. I don't know anything about the threats, but I don't think it's slowing down trains running on tracks near East Palestine. So, you know, Norfolk Southern's worried about some things, but not its business. Um, Bill, let me play for you a little bit more sound from this town hall tonight and the frustration of the residents there. I mean, you hear it there. Why are people getting sick if there's nothing in the air or water? If you think those folks are mad now, wait until they have the time to actually look into the history of Norfolk Southern and really the railroad industry in the last decade in this country. That train that derailed was almost two miles long as a result of an era right now of downsizing staff, laying off 30% of workers, and making the trains 30% longer. And they're operated with brakes that were first invented in the Civil War, 1867 air brakes that break from the front to the back. So it can take two minutes before the back car knows to slow down, and so it becomes this slinky from hell that slams into the cars that have already stopped. Of course we have a better (laughs) mousetrap in the 21st century. It's called electronic controlled pneumatic brakes, Uh, they basically stop every car at once, immediately, much more efficient. And in 2014, the Obama administration wanted to make them mandatory on cars that had explosives in it after a bunch of derailments, and and one just like this in New Jersey that let off this gas. And the industry and Norfolk Southern fought it, even though they had put some on their trains and were screaming about the benefits. They said, if we put these on their trains, those trains should be exempt from all other inspections because they're so safe. But they thought it was too expensive to invest in that. Do you know if we've gotten, uh, these folks have gotten a response from Norfolk Southern yet? Have, have they replied since I they didn't show heard, up? I haven't heard anything. Anything, Jane? On that. Nope, I no. haven't heard anything. Norfolk Southern, I read, um, has set up, uh, I think, a $1 million fund for the community. Is how, how will that go over, Jane? Will that be enough to help the folks like Nate that we just <laughs> heard from? No, it's probably not going to pay for all of the properties and the livelihoods and medical monitoring for all of these individuals. What I do hope is that they're not expecting that even if they do give that kind of small assistant to a resident, that they don't make them sign away all their rights to future recovery. That's always a worry that we have. So, you know, cash like that could really help, but not if it has strings attached. And you were telling me also that just the amount of response that had to show up in terms of the fire department, the fire trucks, that alone could eat up the, some, much of that $1 million. I was stunned to learn I was talking to city officials over the last few days, and 90 fire departments were ne- needed to come on scene, not a big surprise with the size of this fire, to work on the fire for days and days. 
We've now learned that all of that fire equipment, as well as the firefighters' radios and the police department's radios, they need to be replaced because of the contaminants that were on the scene. And the fire trucks and the other type of equipment, if they can be salvaged, need to be cleaned at enormous expense. So you take a town like East Palestine or any of the other locations with fire departments, first of all, their equipment isn't even available if something were to catch on fire tomorrow. Oh my gosh. So it, it, the, the problem just, the more we learn, the more it just keeps growing and, and growing. And Bill, this, this train of hazardous materials that the governor said he didn't know contained hazardous materials, how many of these trains are chugging through all of our neighborhoods at any given moment? Lots of them all the time everywhere. You know, you can reroute a truck full of hazardous material around a population center, but trains are kind of limited on their track choices. And now the, the economics of it, it's all about efficiency. They fought the, the lobbying group's designation of, you know, that this particular kind of train carrying this is extra hazardous, mm-hmm. extra explosive. They willed it down the number of train cars you have to have carrying this in order to classify because that would slow things down. And this is money. They're making money. Uh, this company made 13 billion, just shy of 13 billion dollars in profits last last year. And what's interesting, in 2004, uh, North Southern train crash in South Carolina, spilled chlorine, killed nine people. Mm. But they paid a four million dollar fine because they had violated the Clean Water Act and killed a bunch of fish. I don't know. There might have been a class action sought where they had to pay out to the victims of those families. But somebody's doing a train wreck cost-benefit analysis between paying to put the brakes on the train. Uh, there's about 1,000 derailments a year. I looked at the stats. Uh, 150 of those, 15%, are due to bad tracks that either, either buckled, they can't take the weight, or they've shifted. And the industry is laying off all of these people uh, that would be inspecting those tracks for the profit. And to be fair, the, the, the railroad union has, has kind of gotten screwed from both parties. Joe Biden and the, and the Democrats kept them from striking to get paid health care recently to stop a, you know, a national rail shortage. They were afraid of inflation. So um, this it's not going away. This is not going away. Um, and, and I don't know what the changes are going to be. It kind of feels like, you know, you, you, you can replace the word trains for guns in some ways and say the same special interests that are unifying to stop changes in sa- and, and common sense safety is existing here. Yeah, well, this certainly isn't going away in East <clears throat> Palestine. Um, Jane, Bill, thank you very much for all the information. We will follow it every single day. Please do. Thank That's you. what's necessary. Thanks. Okay, now there's another in the ever-growing list of disasters in the air and on the runway. There was a close call between a jet and a cargo plane in Honolulu, but it happened last month. We're only finding out about it now. Are we less safe in the sky? Tonight, federal investigators are looking into a third near collision at a U.S. airport in less than a month. This close call happening in Honolulu. The FAA says a United Airlines 777 jet crossed a runway where a smaller cargo plane was landing. This incident happening just days after an American Airlines flight at JFK crossed in front of a Delta plane trying to take off. Then there was the near miss in Austin where a FedEx plane almost landed on top of a Southwest flight. And of course, last month, thousands of Americans were stuck in the airport when the vast airline computer system crashed, leading to the first nationwide stoppage of flights since the September 11th attacks. 
It's no wonder the acting head of the Federal Aviation Administration faced a bipartisan grilling on Capitol Hill today. We have a a backup redundant system. Why couldn't we just go to that system? Uh, Thank you, Madam Chair, for the question. I'm asking if you have an answer today about why this occurred. No, ma'am. That that investigation is still ongoing. How did air traffic control direct one plane onto the runway to take off and another plane to land and have them both within 100 feet of each other? It is not what we would expect to have happen. But when we think about the controls, how we train both our controllers and our pilots, the system works. Let's bring in former FAA safety inspector David Susi. David, uh, this is getting to be a habit of meeting every night because there continue to be these, you know, really nerve-wracking incidents in the sky. And so the fact that the acting FAA administrator couldn't answer some of those questions about the system redundancy or why this is happening, how concerning is that? It's the fact that he doesn't know doesn't concern me nearly as much as the fact that he's still acting. And we've talked about this before, too, that that acting role is is very limited on what they can do and can't do, what programs they can start, what they can't do. The FAA has a long history of this type of thing, of just putting an acting administrator in. They start a bunch of studies, and as you could hear him over and over say, well, it's still under investigation. We're still looking into this. We're doing data-driven. You know, he's doing the best what, what he can, but this is a bigger picture problem than just that administrator. Why isn't he permanent in that case? Uh, it's a congressional nomination uh, process. It's this bipartisanship. They have to both buy in on who that administrator is going to be. Uh, he's an acting administrator because he was deputy administrator when the previous administrator left uh, in the middle of his term to be with his family and spend more time with his family. And then this person was put into that role. He's very capable. I, I've, I've heard of the guy. I've never met him, but I know that he's very capable. He has a long history, started as a rotor head and has flown everything all the way up to the largest airplanes. But he was also involved in safety improvement. And in, in my role as a safety investigator and safety analyst, he, he did that role as well. He's very capable of doing this. Yeah. He needs time to do it. And there's a lot of things to fix. So it's basically government bureaucracy, you're saying, and and politics. So, David, while all of this is being, you know, um, stalled, are we getting less safe in the sky? You know, when things happen back to back to back, the FAA looks at longer term safety issues and and they have to. That's part of it. But they do need to look at what's happening on the short term. And what I'm worried about is this this agency, especially with the acting administrator, I don't mean to harp on that too much, but the fact is that this agency, this organization has this administration really has been on autopilot for quite some time, uh, just living on its own merits, living on the fact that our safety record is the best in the world and the best anywhere. And it is, it's still the safest way to travel. There's no question about it. But when things come back to back like this, they have to understand that that's an indicator and they need to know where it's coming from. And it's not only from the FAA. I think Congress plays a role in this, too. But the fact that there have been these near misses, what is that an indicator of? Well, to me, that's an indicator of an overloaded safety system, of of an overloaded national airspace. There's too many things going on, too much going on. They're trying to pack one flight in right after the other, right after the other. And as the system grows, which it's inevitably going to grow, they need to start understanding that the human being part, the human being factor, the fact that this 777 could just 
decide to go across a runway without any kind of instructions to do so, there needs, there needs to be some look at the training and they need to think about putting some slowing the systems down. Uh, it may mean the more delays, but the fact is I'd rather be delay and arrive safely than, than to be there on time. I think we all would. David, stick around if you would, because we have a lot more questions for you, including what this means for the aviation industry as a whole. We have more on the other side. We'll be right back. The acting head of the FAA says he cannot guarantee there will not be another air safety computer system crisis like the one last month that temporarily grounded all flights in the U.S. Why not? Former FAA safety inspector David Susi is back with us and joining the conversation is CNN political commentator Anna Navarro, Republican strategist Joe Pinion, and senior political analyst John Avalon. John, we were just talking about why is he acting? Why is he still an acting FAA head? This seems to be an important part of all of our lives. And why isn't Congress paying more attention? Well, so the previous administrator resigned halfway through his term. Uh, Biden administration nominated someone last March. He has not gotten a hearing from the Senate out of some concern that he doesn't have adequate aviation experience. So here's the question. Senate's either got to fast track that now because we've got cascading problems or the Biden administration's got to pull the nomination and put forward the acting the acting administrator who seems competent with plenty of aviation experience. But when you have this clustering of problems in a system, it's not sustainable to keep with an acting director. David, weren't you just saying that he does have a lot of experience? Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> I can come back to you, David. So sorry. Hold that thought. Yeah, I'll, come, I'll come back to you. <laughs> um, Joe, your thoughts. Look, I think that at some point the American people are going to want answers. I think that, you know, kind of lost in the sauce between all the talk about, you know, January 6th and the elections and all the regular partisan division that we have, we forgot that we had one of the most pervasive cyber attacks uh, in the history of this nation with that solar winds attack uh, that actually compromised the Treasury. It compromised the Department of Homeland Security. It compromised effectively uh, the division within Homeland Security. It's supposed to deal but with But are you saying attacks. that the airline can, what I, is what I'm saying is that we also know that the Washington Post reported that there was a compromising of NASA and also a compromising of the FAA. So at some point, with all of these problems that have emerged, I think it begs the question, uh, is this perhaps some of the residual residue of this cyber attack that occurred, uh, these cascading cyber attacks that have been happening across this nation. Maybe, although, I mean, what we heard with the Southwest Airlines uh, meltdown, computer system meltdown, and even this one, is that they just hadn't been updated. They hadn't been upgraded. They were bound for something like this. These are old systems. I was actually at the airport when we had the FAA meltdown. How fun Uh, was that? (laughs) You know, what it was was very disconcerting. Because there was basically no communication with passengers who were at the airport. I was at Miami International Airport explaining to us what was happening. We just, it started as a delay and, and, and a, you know, one of these trickling delays that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and nobody's understanding. The airlines didn't know. The airline staff didn't know. So it was incredibly disconcerting. And as somebody who flies, I fly most weeks at least four times a week. And... I am, you know, I now find myself thinking about this in a way that I didn't before. I thought I relied on good system. What was my great concern was, okay, we've now seen how defective this system can be, which now means that our international foes know how vulnerable and defective it is. And if, and if you can get that system to fail, 
you paralyze the entire sure. country. And we're doing that anyway, on our own, even right. before a foe finds out how to do yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a critical point. There's no evidence that the current delays are related to hacking, but you need to have updated systems and resilience and redundancy. Um, I, I think that the key point here is we've got dealing with a really antiquated system. This technology is 20, 30 years old. That's just not sufficient when, when travel, air travel is the lifeblood of, of the nation, uh, economically and, and culturally. And so, look, it's been over a decade since we've had a major air disaster. Thank God. But I think, as your previous guest pointed out, that could lead to a degree of complacency. And all these cascading problems are a giant warning sign. Yeah, I would say that to me, what it's uh, indicated to me is that um, this infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure yep. bill that was signed in June and that Donald Trump tried to pass for four years to the point where it became an ongoing joke, was really necessary. We're seeing it with the trains. Absolutely. We're seeing it with the planes. We're overdue. seeing it with the electric I mean, way planes. overdue. Right. And, they can't, and they can't kick it into gear fast enough. I mean, obviously, they got it passed, but it takes a long time to rework all of the airline systems. Well, I think that was part of the thing that many people on the right talked about, this kind of uh, expansive approach to redefining what infrastructure even meant when there were so many clear deficiencies in the hard infrastructure of this nation. And I think we see that with the FAA. We've seen that with our bridges. We see that with our railways. So I think, again, uh, yes, help was needed. Uh, I think, again, I, I recognize that we don't have uh, flashing lights saying that we're being hacked, but I do think that we haven't really even had the conversation right on the floor of Congress to really say, look, what, I mean, the Pentagon came out and said, we wouldn't know the full extent of the damage done by mm-hmm. SolarWinds for over 10 years. So I, I just think that, again, absolutely. there has yeah. to be a conversation. Absolutely, we need to be front-loading that issue. I'm just saying that I, the, the problem seems to be antiquated infrastructure at yeah. in this point. All David, <laughs> yeah, David, I, I want to uh, come back to you. What's the answer to that? Is this acting um, FAA administrator um, experienced enough to take to get the job? Well, I, I think that he is. Yeah, I mean, he came from helicopters. He's gone through every different system, even military, all the way through as a commercial pilot. His years and years and years of experience there. Now, what he might be lacking in is his ability to navigate through these congressional hearings and all of that sort of thing. Because although he did an adequate job, I would say the one thing he didn't do is put it back on Congress because. Every one of the systems, they, they asked him about the NOTAM system. They said, why is it taking 10 years to get this thing fixed? Well, the poignant answer that he can't answer because these guys write his check, the real answer is because Congress pulled my funding. They took the funding away. The same thing with the train system, the positive train control system. They mandate these systems, and then halfway through the deployment, they stop them. And then again, even with the... Uh, the uh, air traffic, the ground avoidance systems that they have, many of the airports, every one of the airports that had these incidents did not have that system installed yet because Congress is the ones who cut their budget. So they got to turn those fingers. You know, you got three pointing back at you when you point a finger. And I think they need to think about that before they start hammering this guy. Well, that's a problem if he can't speak truth to power. I mean, that's a problem. And frankly, all of our lives are affected, even if it's not, we're not talking about safety, just sitting there and being stuck in the airport for hours. If you can't speak truth the power to Congress. Well, and, and, but the, one of the points that, that David's making is that if you have an acting administrator, they don't have that five-year term that leads to a degree of autonomy and independence. And right. when we've got a system where Congress keeps pulling back funding, that derails uh, the, 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 the necessary updates that are needed. So let's get our act together. Let's not make this a partisan issue. Let's actually fund the FAA adequately. Let's modernize the in- infrastructure, including air traffic control, before a real disaster takes place. Well, is this one of the most effective lobbies in Washington? is the airline lobby. And I think it it behooves uh, the airlines uh, to take every measure they can to get this this infrastructure so that it's not antiquated and it's not vulnerable because if there's a disaster, it's going to affect all of us. And I, I have to tell you, I feel 
terrible for airline staff and airline workers. Mm-hmm. Everybody from the pilots to the airport crews to the flight attendants, they suffered so much during the pandemic. So many were furloughed. Then they couldn't bring them back uh, fast enough. I mean, they had to deal with unruly passengers. We saw time and time again how the mask issue became, you know, they, they, it turned into World Wrestling Federation on airplanes. And it's, it's, so it's just more and more stress on these poor workers. I mean, it's broader than uh, just the FAA, right? I think, again, I mean, ever since I was a teenager, we knew that the roads and bridges in this country were graded deficient, right? And so it appears in this country, unfortunately, nothing ever gets fixed until people... But now we do have the infrastructure. Now we do have the infrastructure, Bill. And hopefully Mm -hmm. these, all the bridges that we see President Biden standing in front of every week, that they are going to be rehabbed. Well, yeah, Sometimes next to Republicans who voted against the indeed, infrastructure indeed. bill. Indeed. <laughs> yes, you got to yes. pass the bill, then yeah. you got to implement the spending. Yes, the okay, but, but hopefully that's um, happening. All right, thank you all very much. Thanks. It's perhaps the million-dollar question. How much money would you need to leave your job? When is enough enough? One former Major League Baseball player is now causing a lot of us to think about that question. We'll ask our guests here, what's their magic number? All right, so how much is enough money for you to walk away from your career? Have you ever imagined what that magical number might be? That's exactly what former Major League Baseball player John Jaso did, walking away from the possibility of making millions more. There he is during his successful MLB career, and here he is now, retired and sailing around the Caribbean with his girlfriend. So our question is, how much is enough for you to give it all up. Back with me, Anna Navarro, Joe Pinion, and joining us now is former professional tennis player Patrick McEnroe. Patrick, it's rare for um, high-paid professional athletes to walk away while they can still play, right? You know, I wish I had that problem when I was playing because I wasn't making enough. But normally for, for most mere mortal athletes, the decision is made for you. You know, either you can't make enough money, which I couldn't, or I had an injury, which is part of it. A lot of players that are in team sports like baseball, basketball, football, they just can't get a new contract. They get cut by their team, so they're out. But I think the more interesting question are the players that are big names. You know, I mean, you go back in history, you go to Bobby Jones, won the Grand Slam in golf in 1930, and he retired right after that. Then you go to some great team sport athletes, Jim Brown, 1966. He was the MVP in 65. You've got Sandy Koufax, who had a 1.73 ERA in 66. Then he retired. And, now, that, and they just walk away because they, they, they had They walk enough? away. Well, Jim Brown obviously went on to be a great influencer in, in, in the social world, in the political world, what he's done. But now the, the modern athlete is dealing with this, this, this idea that they can make so much money in a short period at a time that they can play like this baseball player did, who was a really good player, but not a great player, for seven, eight, nine, ten years, and then they can literally sail off into the sunset, which is what this guy did. That's exactly right. Um, Anna, what's your magic number? What would you need to give it all up? Or would you do that? You know, I'm not sure it's about money, right? Because look at Tom Brady. He He has all the money in the world, and he kept playing. I think a lot of it is also about the fans and the adrenaline and having something to do and the and the work and the and the habit and the fear of the void that's going to be in your heart and in your life and in your schedule so i know when you say what's the number i'm not sure that it's just all about money and i think the 
the pandemic actually, I think, made a lot of us who are not athletes. Obviously, I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about <laughs> when it comes to athletes. When you said ERA, I thought you were talking about the organization. <laughs> but I think the pandemic made a lot of us reassess life and what our priorities are and where we want to spend our lives. But didn't it make us less money grubbing or money or, or um, consumer oriented and consumption because people did walk away from their jobs by out of necessity. You had to go home. And didn't it sort of renew something about maybe we have all been spending too much time at the office. Maybe we have given up some of our values in that way. That's what he talks about. Basically, he had enough and he didn't need any more millions more and he wanted to go on his sailboat. And he did it before the pandemic. This guy's actually living out the bumper sticker. I'd rather be fishing. I'd yes. rather be saving. He actually did it. Joe, do you have a magic number? Look, I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm a fool. I quit my job for free to run for U.S. Senate last uh-huh. year. So, look, I, I think at the end of the day, to Anna's point, people have to reassess what's important to them, particularly in the aftermath of COVID. If you drop dead next week, would you be happy with how you spent this week? And I think for a lot of people, they're sitting well, there... Well, once you drop dead, who cares? Well, the people you leave behind do. And I think, yeah. again... Um, people want to spend more time with their family. People realize there's time with loved ones that they'll never be able to recapture in the aftermath of COVID. So I think that's an important aspect of this. And I think Tom Brady's an interesting pick because I think athletes for such a long time were expected to just play until they literally drop dead, almost on the gridiron, be carried out on their shield. And even somebody Tom Brady long considered one of the best um, in some ways, uh, if the reports are true, uh, that reluctancy to leave contributed to the end of his marriage. Yeah. I think you don't wish that on anyone. Yeah. I, picked on, I picked him because it's literally the only name the only I know. And it was well done. I want to well ask done. you, yeah. do you have a number? Well, yes. I, I think about this from time to time because sometimes I play the lottery when it gets to be like a billion dollars. <laughs> and, and the truth is, is that I get a lot of satisfaction and gratification from my career. So I'm not mm-hmm. looking to walk away from it. In other words, I think that he had, was done with it. He had gotten all the gratification, this baseball player, that he could out of it. But I still get that, you know, fizzy feeling. And I don't think money can fill that void. So I don't know what I would do every day. We don't know what we would do if you weren't here. Yeah, well, okay? yeah, we, we, we thank you. Survive. I'm the real hero. I know what you would do. I've watched your Instagram. You'd make cocktails. <laughs> I would, now, listen, it would be great for a month. If somebody wants to give me a sabbatical, paging my yeah. boss, <laughs> for two months, that would be great. But for the rest of the time, I don't want to be on a sailboat, to be honest. Well, that isn't what appeals to me. I think Anna has a great point, though, because when it comes to athletes, right, you have to have the passion. Yeah. You have to love what you do. And Tom Brady clearly loves it. Of course, he likes making a lot of money. But more than that, he loves the game after doing all he did. Look at the case of another great quarterback who retired early, Andrew Luck, who went to my alma mater, Stanford, was the number one pick in the draft, was a great quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts, looked like he was on his way to becoming a Hall of Famer. And in his late 20s, early 30s, he said, I've had it. I've had too many injuries. I've had enough. Didn't speak to the media for three years. It was 2019 when he retired. He has thus come out, gave one interview where he said, to your point, Joe, his marriage was part of what played into it. He wanted his marriage to succeed. He wanted that to work. And he felt that being a quarterback was all-encompassing. He wasn't willing go. to go down I that mean, road. I mean, that's the opposite I, of the road that, mm-hmm. that Tom Brady took. I mean, I even think about yeah. somebody like, you know, Kobe Bryant. I mean, people always talk about what's your next chapter. And, you know, so many people that loved Kobe, that next chapter was cut short. But more importantly, for his family, that didn't right. get to enjoy Absolutely. that next chapter. So in the aftermath of things like that, yes. I think a lot of people are looking around and saying, is it really worth it? I was, like, I was yes. sitting on Quickly. the plane uh, the other day behind Mariano Rivera. Mm. Uh, and um, he was coming back from Honduras. 
where he has a foundation where he had just set up a, a, a feeding center yeah. for needy people. And so I, I think it's athletes like that that have that next chapter that can channel their fame yeah. into doing some good. Yeah. Uh, that can walk away with. Okay, look, first of all, you know two athletes, okay? You just proved it. <laughs> second By the way, I met him at a Mark Anthony event. <laughs> perfect, perfect. By the way, as a um, Yankee fan, yes. we take him and his splitter back anytime. We'll I know you would. Back anytime. All right, look, the message here, everyone, is follow your passion. That's yep. what we're trying to say. Bingo. Meanwhile, the entertainment world remembering actress Raquel Welch tonight, who died at 82 years old after a brief illness. Her life and legacy, next. Sad news tonight in the world of entertainment. Actress Raquel Welch has died in Los Angeles after a brief illness. She was 82 years old. Welch started her career in the 1960s, playing the role of a prehistoric cave woman in the movie One Million Years B.C., which turned her into an international sex symbol. Just look at her right there. In an interview with Cinema.com about 20 years ago, Welch said that being a sex symbol was flattering and helped her find success, but only to a point. She was also proud of her family's Bolivian heritage. She had a long career, not only in the movies, but also on television and the stage. Raquel Welch was also an entrepreneur, selling beauty products, jewelry, wigs, and skincare. We'll be right back. Newly minted presidential candidate Nikki Haley says she's the person who can expand the GOP base. Here's what she said to Sean Hannity on Fox tonight, just hours after her first rally as a candidate. We will get people that will come into our fold. Our goal is not, we are not about compromises. We are not about um, changing who we are. We're about fighting boldly for what we believe, but convincing our opponents to be with us. And that's the part that's going to change. We need to expand our tent. We have to bring Hispanics in. We have to bring the Jewish community in. We need to bring the Asian community in. We need to bring African Americans in because our policies are right. I want to bring in CNN political commentator Margaret Hoover, Democratic commentator Kaivon Shroff, former professional tennis player Patrick McEnroe, and senior reporter for The Root, Jessica Washington. Great to have all of you here. You. Margaret, I want to start with you. Tell us, because uh, you like Nikki Haley. I think that, I mean, I've heard yeah, that you, you're you excited about this addition to the field. Absolutely. So tell us what her strong... Anyone against Donald Trump, I'm for. Perfect. <laughs> well, then you're going to be for a lot of people because it's going to be a crowded field, it's it seems true. like. It's true. Well, we'll so, see. Um, what do you think her strong suits are that could elevate her to the top of the pack, possibly? Look, here's what I like about what she said today. First of all, her speech was one about growing the tent, building the party, reaching out. It was inclusive. Um, and, and that's aspirational. It was very happy warrior. It was, I'm going to fight like the GOP base needs me to, but I'm going to be happy about it, like Ronald Reagan. Um, so it was sort of this fusion of where the party is now and, and where many of us wish the party had stayed um, and would like to see it go. The generational change piece is huge, and she had some wonderful zingers around that. I think the key with Nikki Haley is that she is the only person who has been able to navigate Donald Trump on her own terms. She left his cabinet at her own time and choosing without having him say, don't let the door hit you on the way out. And so if there's anyone in the Republican field who I think can navigate his uh, peculiar, frankly, bullying 
which by the way, she tipped her hat to without naming him. I think that's even a tell of how she'll handle him. I'm curious about that because what happens when he does start going after her? Well, let's see what mm. happens. I mean, right now he said, come on in, the water's warm, where on the other hand, he's attacking all his other prospective opponents. Um, Kaivon, you are an Indian American. Yes. And she, I mean, Margaret was just talking, well, I think both of them were talking about Nikki Haley and Margaret about how she can expand the tent. Do you see it that way? Yeah, I think we just saw her say she doesn't want to compromise, and so she doesn't want to expand the tent. And it's really this juxtaposition where almost every statement I've seen from her so far has been, you know, almost an oxymoron. She's this Indian American who doesn't believe in identity politics, but wants you to celebrate that she was the first minority woman governor in the same sentence as she's saying, you know, the culture wars have gone too far. She's somebody who, you know, has changed her name. She's changed her religion. She identified as white in 2001 on her voter registration card, and suddenly at 50 plus. She's discovered she's Indian American. So I don't think it's that compelling. It's going to be a tough sell to the Indian American community, I think. Here is her, what she said today about the generational change. So let's listen to Nikki Haley for a moment. In the America I see, the permanent politician will finally retire. We'll have term limits for Congress. and mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old. I wonder who she's referring to, Patrick. Uh, uh, hold on, let me think. Uh, I love that she said that. I thought her rollout was actually perfect today. I thought she, I mean, she's powerful, she's smart, she's got the background, and she has all the policies, though, that Trump is at, even though I think what you are all saying, correct that she's going to kind of do her own thing, and she'll, as she said, she'll kick back if she, if she has to, but uh, I love what she said about term limits. I mean, I think, think there's, I mean, you're not supposed to say this, but I'm not a politician, so I'll say it. There's just way too many people that are just too old in, yeah. in, in Congress, in the Senate, all over politics. And something has to change, in my view. Jessica, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a compelling argument that politicians have gotten too old. I wonder if it's enough. I think she's entering an incredibly crowded field. She's entering a field with you know, opponents who are going to be incredibly strong among Republicans. She's able to speak to this kind of, we need to be inclusive. But is that enough in a Republican primary? I don't know. Margaret, is it complicated that she has been all over the map on some things, such as Donald Trump? Um, does that, I mean, she's, she has flip-flopped in terms of if he's a bully, if he's fit for office, if she's going to vote for him, if he's great, if she wants to work for him. If she'd run, if he's uh, running. Yes. Is that, uh, no, I mean, is that look, complicating things for her? Here's... <laughs> I understand that on the surface, um, that, that's an easy place to go. But she just entered the Republican primary, right? She has one job right now, which is to win the nomination. And being on both sides of Trump, frankly, may be a liability, may not, depending on how she navigates the rest of the field and depending on who her competition is and how they handle it. I mean, we on, this is a dynamic situation. We have no idea how this... And by the time, if she does win the nomination, by the time you get to the general, are people really going to be saying hey, you said that thing about Trump two years ago. People are going to be glad Trump's not the nominee. <laughs> They're right, Kyle. Yeah, people sure. have short memories about that, right? They do, but I feel like we're doing her this big favor by even seriously considering that she's running for president. She I is mean, running for this president. Is really, this yeah, is really totally a tactic that. that she's no, taking, no, no, I feel no, like, no. to audition for 
vice president. Why? But why, why do you diminish her in that way? I, I feel she's a completely unserious candidate. She has no strong policy position. She can't, on that Fox interview you just played, she couldn't name one policy disagreement she has with Trump. Um, so that's an interesting Maybe she fact. doesn't have any so policy So if she doesn't have any, then why is she running? And, um, you know, she's polling at 1%. So there's really no demand for her to be running. So this is really, I think, what a politician who has flip-flops so much that she's really on her last legs here. What, what else would she, Nikki Haley be doing right now? Now, if not running for president. And I think that's a sad state of affairs for our democracy that we've come Quickly, to. Quickly, you want to talk Wait, about is she running for president or not running for president? You say, look, here's, here's the In thing. In name only. She, she is running for president. And she's running because she actually believes that she can win. And she's, by the way, been plotting this move in her life for many years. Um, I, I, I do think it diminishes her to say she's not running yeah. for president. I, I appreciate that, you know, a lot of people aren't going to like her. But um, I, I do think she's serious. Yeah. And, yeah, and also she just got in. I'm, I'm, I don't want to see the poll numbers today. I think that we have to see what her poll numbers are, you know, now that she's in. But I do want to also say one more thing, Jessica. She, one of the things she's well known for is the Confederate flag, getting the Confederate flag taken down in, you know, Columbia, South Carolina, after the Mother Emanuel Church massacre. And that was um, different than where she, the position she started out as. And it was seen as bold at the time. Definitely. And I remember that moment. I think that really did speak to Black Americans. I remember feeling that that was a move that it was symbolically important. It was a really, it was a very sad time in the community. What I will say about that is, A, I don't know how important Black voters are going to be in a Republican primary. And also, I just don't know that that would be enough to sway Black voters, even in a general election. That's true. But I think what it shows is that, you know, she's willing to be a Nixon in China in the sense that, like, it takes a Republican woman of color to take down the Confederate flag from the capital of South Carolina. And she leveraged all her political capital at the time to do it. And it was the right thing to do. And you're right. It didn't get her the Black, you know, it didn't win her Black voters you know, well, she didn't run again. I mean, it was in her second term. But I, I think you're right. It's not that black yeah. voters in South Carolina will come to her defense. And, or I think defense, but not vote for yeah. her. But that's not why she did it. She did it because the right thing to do. Friends, we have to leave it there. We have many more things to talk about. Thank you all for sharing those perspectives. Meanwhile, George Santos is telling <laughs> people he's thinking about running for a second term after lying his way into Congress the first time. Next, we're going to speak to a psychologist who tells us, is someone a pathological liar? What are the descriptors? We'll see. Sources tell CNN that truth-challenged GOP Congressman George Santos may run for re-election, even as top lawmakers try to oust him. More details tonight from an Amish farmer who alleges that Santos wrote him bad checks in exchange for puppies in 2017. Santos claimed at the time that his checkbook was stolen, but his victims think this is just part of the never-ending stream of lies coming from Santos. Some of his old friends refer to him as a pathological liar. Let's ask an expert. Joining me now is psychologist Christian Hart. He's the director of the Human Deception Laboratory at Texas Women's University and the author of Pathological Lying. Um, Chris, you are the perfect person to talk to tonight. I, I've read that pathological liar is not sort of a scientific term. It's not in the DSM, which is, of course, the you know Bible of mental disorders. But all of us seem to know what a pathological liar is, colloquially at least, and is George Santos one? Well, you're right. When we talk about pathological liars, it's a very common term um, used in our culture. And what people mean by it is just someone who lies a lot. 
as psychologists, when we look at the term, what we're referring to is a clinically significant pattern of excessive lying. The lying often causes disturbances in their life, um, problems in their social relationships, problems in the workplace. It also um, occasionally puts them at, at legal risk or risk of loss of other opportunities. Well, so doesn't, he fit, I mean, doesn't like, he fit that bill to a T? Uh, from what I've read in the news, he certainly seems like uh, he uh, he meets many of those criteria. Because he's lying at this point about things that are easily exposed. This is what's so confusing to the public. He's not even lying about things that will necessarily benefit him for more than two weeks because now they're instant. I mean, he, he's lied about... His Jewish ancestry, that was easily exposed. His grandparents being Holocaust survivors, no, they weren't. He's falsely claimed his mother was at the World War Trade, you know, World Trade Center on 9-11. No, she wasn't. He's claimed to have worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. That's easily exposed. No, he didn't. He's claimed to graduate from different colleges. No, he didn't. They said he has said that he played college volleyball. No, he didn't. And so what's the point of those lies? Well, when we look at the point of lies, um, we see that people lie when they believe that they can get something that they want that they can't achieve by using honesty. But we also see that most people don't lie. Most people are pretty honest most of the time. And But we do see this very small subset, about 5% of the population that engages in really excessive lying. And one of the patterns we see with those people is that they don't really seem to have the moral break that prevents most of us from lying. So for a typical person, they'll oftentimes have the opportunity to lie, and it's really unlikely they would get caught, yet they still refrain from lying. What we see with people who engage in pathological lying is oftentimes they're engaging in risk-taking behavior, and they're also willing to morally justify their lying as being okay. Is it a mental disorder? Does he, do we need to see this through the lens of mental illness somehow? Well, we do see with a number of personality disorders, including antisocial personality disorder, pathological lying is a key component. And so with antisocial personality disorder, people use manipulation to and deception to exploit others and take advantage of others, typically without any guilt or shame or remorse. And so in that sense, yeah, we, we look at it as psychologists as part of a mental disorder, but the types of people who have this mental disorder tend to be in prison. <laughs> or, or Congress, I guess. Um, there. Uh, okay. Uh, Christian Hart, thank you very much for explaining all of that. Back with us now, Margaret Hoover, Kai Von Schroff, Jessica Washington, and Patrick McEnroe. Um, Jessica, one of the fascinating things about George Santos is that it's, you, as Christian just said, you don't come across somebody that often who looks in your face and lies directly to you over and over when you can easily be exposed. So it's, there's something, you know, the talented Mr. Ripley about this where you can't believe that this is actually happening over and over again. It's, there's a, something sort of mesmerizing about him. I agree. It is a bizarre phenomenon to watch someone repeatedly lie. When we got to the cartoonishly evil part with the dogs, that was <laughs> honestly... That was a little much. It was a little much. It was a little much. But I think what's just what makes it almost easier for him to get away with it is that it is so cartoonishly evil. I think it's easy for us to sit and laugh about it and not kind of talk about the fact that we have a con man, a clear, obvious con man in Congress. And that's a part of the problem.
The, yes. the, the scary thing to me about, and again, I'm going I'm to forget the politics, the political side of this, because it's obvious that they should have thrown him out already, the Republicans, but they're not going to do that, apparently. But the crazy thing to me, just watching this, this guy seems like he's enjoying it. I mean, he, you see him, he's smiling. He loves, he's, we're on, he's on CNN every night. Everybody's talking about him. And, and it's like, he got exactly what he wanted. That's scary. Well, that's why I think that he does fit the pathological liar bill, um, as we've been discussing in that loose definition, because he's not um, chagrined when he's caught. He doesn't seem uncomfortable when he's caught. He keeps doing it. He doesn't learn from being caught. It's like it's a compulsion. Yeah, until it actually all catches up with him, because the Eastern District of New York is investigating him. I mean, this is a guy who according to his financial disclosures two years ago, didn't have an asset worth more than $5,000 and now he's worth $11 million. How does that happen in two years? I mean, you can lie about dogs and that's egregious and you can lie about other things, but you can't lie about getting that much money. That's, I mean, so frankly, the music's going to stop at some point and probably Republicans won't do anything about it until there's an indictment. And then he's going to be forced out and then no one's going to be talking about him. So you know what? This whole thing. Enjoy it now. Yeah, like, <laughs> not going to last. Not going to last. Come on. You know, you know, he reminds me a lot of Real Housewives and Jen Shaw, who's going to prison this Friday um, for fraud. And the Southern District brought the case because you wonder, why do these people stay on reality TV knowing they committed a felony? And it really is a level of narcissism. But I also think the power of a platform. And we learned that from Trump. But these reality stars, George Santos, these people are experts at using a platform. And so, of course, he's going to run for really election. He's like a shark, right? He's going to keep swimming, and the minute he stops, he'll die. I like that you're weaving in Real Housewives. <laughs> Very important. I didn't Very expect that yeah, tonight. Just, I didn't just expect when I can't get more low bars, you <laughs> weave that <laughs> in and late night. That's, that's next level. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, when is the music going to stop? I mean, how long will this take, Margaret? Uh, it strikes me that, as, as we know, the gears of justice grind slowly. Um, one has to be thorough. And what I understand from House Republican leadership and, and some contacts that I've chatted with there is that they're not going to do anything until the legal process works its way through the courts. And so and so that takes time. I mean, he may say he's running for reelection. I suspect before he can actually get his name on a ballot, there will be an indictment. But this can go on for months and months. And every single week, there is something with him. He doesn't stop. Every single week, there's some sort of scandal or some sort of lie that comes out. I liked the one last week where he was saying that Kirsten, Senator Kirsten Cinema had complimented him and had supported him. And he was like, because she's a really good person. She's wonderful. He, she was like, that's a lie. <laughs> like, even, when, even when he complimented her, she was like, not so fast. She wouldn't not even true. take it. This is just what has happened. I mean, literally in the last week, the Senator Cinema's office had to say, no, that's a lie. Um, you know, he was confronted by um, Mitt Romney. The FEC ordered Santos to formally declare his candidacy or disavow recent fundraising. So there you go. That's another financial uh, pickle that he could be in. But I just and, and then I mean, the whole stuff, Jessica, as you were saying, that the cartoonishly bad stuff. I mean, he is accused and now is being investigated for stealing money from a disabled vet whose dog mm. was dying. That's beyond lying. I mean, obviously, that's fraud. That's, um, that's theft. May, may I ask a question? Please. Um, as Margaret so you know, rightly said, it's, this process has to play out, the legal process. But let, let, let's assume that there's some snafu, because we've seen this happen before, right? You're, you, you think this guy's definitely going to get nailed. He won't get nailed legally. He's, he says he wants to run again. Do you think he could win? 
I suspect, you hesitated. I, See, no, you hesitated. No, I suspect the Republican Party in the state of New York uh, will will uh, will uh, find another candidate. Okay. Go ahead, Jessica. Yeah, and I, I would say I think at least the polling now is looking like people want him to resign. The most, the vast majority of his voters are looking for him to resign. And I can't help, I mean, especially as someone who writes for the black community, I think a lot of the conversations we're having is how does he keep getting away with this? You know, with the criminal justice system as it is, and you're looking at fraud after fraud after fraud, and you're like, okay, now he's in Congress? This feels a little unfair. Understood. <laughs> I mean, like, he's passing bad checks, and he goes, oh, well, my checkbook was stolen. Why haven't I tried that? You know, (laughs) it was that easy. You just sell the police You just say it. My checkbook was stolen? It is an insane thing. Final word. Well, I think the challenge for Republicans that George Santos really poses is he is a liar, and he is likely a criminal, but where are they going to draw the line? Because they have so many undesirable characters in their caucus right now that if they go after him, then it's the next person, and it's Gates, and it's, you know, there's a long list of people who've engaged in deeply unethical, probably illegal behavior. And so once they demand accountability for him, it's coming for them and they don't want that. Okay, friends, thank you very much for all of that. We must turn to this now. The shooter in the horrific racist Buffalo supermarket attack was sentenced today. It was an emotional scene in court. The families of the victims confronted the killer. A very emotional day in Buffalo, a judge sentencing the supermarket mass shooter to life in prison without parole. The 19-year-old carried out his racist attack at a Topps grocery store in May, killing 10 people. During today's hearing, a family member of victim Catherine Massey rushed at the convicted shooter, but he was blocked by security, who then led the gunman away. You can see the melee there. And as they usher the gunman out, the sentencing also featured emotional victim impact statements with family members unleashing their grief and anger on the gunman for the pain that he caused them and the Buffalo community. I hope you are haunted every day and every night. I hope nightmares invade your sleep and convict and conviction be your constant companion. I'm pissed, and I'm sad, and I hate you. And I didn't think I would be strong enough to look you in the face and tell you this, and how much you hurt me. My little brother, who's three years old, got to grow up without his dad. So do I hate you? No. Do I want you to die? No. I want you to stay alive. I want you to think about this every day of your life. I forgive you, but I forgive you not for your sake, but for mine and for this black community. I forgive you, because that's the only way we're going to heal. But you can best believe I will never forget your name. Today's sentencing was for state charges. The gunman still faces federal charges. Back with me, we have Margaret Hoover, Kai Von Schroff, Patrick McEnroe, and Jessica Washington. Jessica, um, those victim impact statements are so valuable. When, when There was a while, there, I think there were years in court where judges didn't allow them, mm-hmm. and the, the advent of these victim impact statements has been, I think, so so much progress because they get to look at the gunman right in the eye and give them a piece of his mind. And how about those people that say, I forgive you? Yeah. They're just made of something different. It was, it's really difficult to watch that. I think the amount of pain that I think the entire black community and obviously specifically the community in Buffalo felt 
after those shootings, after after that shooting, after reading the manifesto. I mean, there were obviously also names of black prominent black activists that were included in that manifesto as targets. I think the fear that that caused is undeniable. And so for the families, I do hope that this brings them some level of peace. Um, it is hard to say that we can ever necessarily get that, I think, in the criminal justice system. But hopefully for those families being able to say what they needed to say and to have this sentence, hopefully for them and that community, it is it is peace. I think so, too. It is some measure of closure. I know that's an overused word, but I know that, I mean, I've spoken to families after the victim impact statement. It is some measure of closure to be able to look at the person who has caused them so much pain. He also said, Margaret, that he did this terrible act because he believed what he read online. I mean, here is this just poisonous toxin that young men, for the most part, mm-hmm fill themselves and their heads with and then hate people and go out and are violent. And, and there's a, a degree of radicalization that happens online and, uh, and isolation um, that happens in time, especially in this time of COVID. But I, I hate to focus. Look, it, that is, that is a, a problem that we need to look at holistically as a, as a country. Um, I don't want to focus too much on him because he's the perpetrator of these murders. It, it was those victim impact statements. And there was one that just really, really caught me that wasn't profiled there. It was the granddaughter of Ruth Elizabeth Whitfield, who was an 87, 86-year-old grandmother who, who was targeted, who died. She was murdered. Um, she was the grandmother. She was the mother of the former fire commissioner of Buffalo. And the granddaughter sat there and said, you know what? What I learned from my grandmother is love. And she had the grace to stand up there and say... What you wanted to do was poison us and to to fill this community with hate and poison and racism. And all you did was immortalize my grandmother. And love has won the day. And and that is so extraordinary um, and an incredible measure of grace. Yeah. And I appreciate not wanting to talk about the shooter. I don't say his name. But I do talk about the motivation because I'm forever searching for how we stop this in the future. Mm. And so knowing that he was indoctrinated or poisoned or whatever you want to call it online, I think is a valuable clue. Absolutely. And I think another clue is that we have more guns than people in this country. And if we just look at this week alone, two days ago, a shooting in Michigan. By the way, a student at that school was a survivor of the Sandy Hook more attack. More than one. That, there, more, there were two were at the Oxford High School also. So now kids are living through two <laughs> school shootings. It's crazy. And then yesterday, of course, marked five years since Parkland. And then today we have this verdict and another shooting in Texas. So really, we, we're trapped as a country and we have the bipartisan bill that just passed, and that's a sign of progress, but we need so much more. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it was, was good to be able to hear from those families. I know for them to be able to do that was meaningful, but to, to his point, it, it's about the guns. I mean, let's, I mean that's, that's what... I've, I've been lucky enough to travel all over the world as a professional athlete. They have mental health issues all over the world. No other civilized country has this issue. It's just, they just don't. I, I interviewed the um, police commissioner of Minneapolis, first, first new police commissioner since George Floyd's murder uh, two years ago, who, who came from Newark. He had a career in Newark. Now he's in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, he absolutely believes everything you guys just said. Um, and this is not a conservative Republican Democrat issue. This is literally because there is, and there's an explosion of guns available, ghost guns, track guns, illegal guns, since COVID, uh, in a time of heightened isolation where people felt scared, where crime has gone up, people feel they need to arm themselves. And so accidents occur, mental illness occurs, there's more gun violence because of the preponderance. There's a direct link. 
But I think the gun industry also has perpetuated this big lie that you just mentioned, which is people do feel that guns make you safer, but we have data to show more guns mean less safe. And so I think unpacking that myth in a major way is so important and not cozying up to the NRA or perpetuating their talking points um, is part of it. And that is partisan. Yeah, it's not even open for debate anymore as far as I'm concerned. It is demonstrably true that we are not keeping guns out of the hands of disturbed young men. And we see them as mass shooters and school shooters, and it happens time and again. They fit a profile. Not all of them. They don't fit the exact same profile, but they sure are similar to each other. And they shoot off warning signs always that they're disturbed and that they're going to do something. They often post it online, and then they do. Yeah, and I think we have to also talk, in addition to talks about gun control. We have to talk about white supremacist violence specifically and the ideology of that and why that is such a threat. I think, especially in the interviews that I've done with Black Lives Matter uh, co-founder Alicia Garza, interviews I've done with people in the community, activists, people who aren't activists as well, this concern about white supremacy and about this type of violence, what we saw with January 6th, we saw with the Buffalo shooting, we saw with the Emanuel Church shooting that we talked about earlier, this is also a huge part of the issue. And black Americans are incredibly concerned about this. I think the most recent polling I saw said that 70% of black Americans believe this is the number one terrorist threat to to our community. And so I think that's also something we have to address in addition to gun control. What is motivating people to take on this ideology that is so dangerous and corrosive and what do we do about it? Excellent point. Um, Thank you all. Really appreciate it. Now to a hopeful story, a mid-tragedy. Survivors are still being pulled from the rubble 10 days after the earthquake in Turkey and Syria that killed more than 41,000 people. CNN's Sanjay Gupta is on the ground in Turkey with some incredible stories of survival. That's next. We continue to see astonishing stories of survival in Turkey. Ten days after the devastating earthquake that killed more than 41,000 people there and in Syria. Today, a woman and two children, eight and ten years old, were pulled alive out of the rubble of their apartment building. Rescuers say the victims were trapped for 228 hours. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, is on the ground in Turkey. He joins me now. Sanjay, you've been doing such incredible work there. Can you just explain how they're surviving? I thought that humans could only go a few days without water. How are people staying in the rubble eight, nine, ten days with no food or water? It it is really, truly remarkable, Allison. I mean, if you look at these types of situations, uh, the vast majority of rescues, people are going to be rescued, 90% happen within the first 24 hours. And then after that, typically the maximum time to rescue is, is seven days. Um, so what we're seeing here is, is pretty extraordinary. Now, th- there can be all sorts of different reasons for that. Uh, you know, part of it could just be the, the, the conditions. It's very cold, uh, which is sort of a double-edged sword. Allison, on one hand, it makes it very hard just to uh, the circumstances around trying to rescue people. But it may also cut down on people's water needs. You typically think 100 hours. That's just sort of a ballpark figure. 100 hours is what someone might be able to go to without water. And as you point out, People have been going longer. Do they have sources of water? There are certain parts that where you've had rain or there was water available in some way. We don't know. But I can tell you this, though, that I was spending time with the military today. They are still very much in search and rescue mode. At some point, they sort of transition to more recovery mode. You don't get that sense at all, Allison. I mean, people have been working around the clock. People are rising up. 
and I think they continuously get buoyed up when they when they hear about another uh, rescue, which are still happening. We can hear that. I mean, we hear the hoops and hollers go up, and it's just, as I said, astonishing yeah. to see these survivals, and it gives us so much hope on every level, really, of life. But, Sanjay, what about the babies? We've also seen babies and children pulled from the rubble after days. I mean, I thought that babies, I remember having them, had to eat every three to four hours. How are babies surviving for days? I, I, again, it's it's one of these things where, you know, I think every circumstance is a bit different. I spent some time in a hospital, for example, yesterday, and the initial story was that a baby had survived after many, many days. What we came to learn, this story is just sort of unbelievable, Allison, but when this building collapsed, um, as it was happening, this baby, five stories up, was sort of hurtled from the window and actually came out the building. And, and then the building collapsed. It was sort of pancaked at that point. Families inside, they, they were able to survive. Uh, it took them 14 hours to dig out of the rubble. Then they went to go look for baby. Now we're talking several days and could not find baby. Uh, they assumed the worst. Well, it turns out a good Samaritan had actually rescued the baby, taken the baby to a hospital. Baby did have fractured leg, had a fractured skull, but was alive. So, you know, this was a situation that's just very unusual. It was remarkable. Uh, again, people hesitate to use the word miraculous, but falling five stories, being rescued by a good Samaritan, taken to the hospital, and then ultimately reunited because someone showed a picture on social media to the mom of this baby. At first, she wasn't even sure it was her child, but then turns out it was, and they were reunited, Allison. I don't think there's any other word but miraculous for that story, Sanji. I saw that. <laughs> it's truly incredible. And so I know you've been spending time at the hospital. Tell us some of the other things you've seen there. Well, you know, again, when you, when you start to spend time with these survivors and really hear their stories of what happened to them, you know, we, we hear sort of the, the binary, person trapped, rescued, but there's so many different components to this story. I want you to hear uh, this, this particular one uh, from Mr. Barber in terms of how he was able to survive for so long. I've got diabetes, you see. So more important than food, there was some medication in the cabinet and a bottle of water. They all fell down next to me. I swallowed some medication with the water. The bottle was empty. So what to do? Now, this is a bit embarrassing. I urinated into it, and then I would drink it. That's the way I managed to survive. I mean, look, Allison, um, extraordinary stories of survival, stories of people doing what they had to do in order to make it through this. And, you know, that, that's another example. When you actually talk to people and hear how these survival stories are uh, unfolding, you hear stories like that. I mean, incredibly resourceful, and he survived, and that's the whole yeah. point. Sanjay, thank you so much for the work you're doing there. We wouldn't know these stories if you and Sarah Seidner and our CNN crews weren't on the ground. Um, great to talk to you. Really appreciate it tonight. Got it. Thanks, Alice. And we'll be right back. Okay, so inflation is making breakfast a lot more expensive. A dozen eggs are 70% more expensive than they were last year at this time. Staples like cereal, coffee, and breakfast sausages are all up double digits. And now an article in the Wall Street Journal has a suggestion. Maybe just skip breakfast. Here with me, Margaret Hoover, Kai Von Schroff, Patrick McEnroe, and Jessica 
Washington. Uh, Margaret, this is worse than let them eat cake. This is like no coffee cake for you. I, I actually fundamentally reject this advice. I think it's a terrible idea. I think everything your mother told you, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, is actually substantiated by the data. I mean, if you have breakfast, you will have lower um, your heart, you won't have low blood pressure, you'll have low blood pressure, your cholesterol will be lower, you're, you have less chance of heart disease, less chance of, weight, chance of weight gain, all the things that go downstream from just having breakfast in the morning. So you know what? Inflation's hitting a lot of people. Yeah. But there's a lot of ways you can redirect your resources in order to make sure you're doing a long-term thing that's good for your health. Kaivon, are you pro or anti-breakfast? I have to admit, I'm a black coffee until 2 p.m. guy. No. But... No. <laughs> so you're skipping lunch also. Well, you know, my, my take on this article was like, what are they going to suggest next? Skip lunch and dinner, you'll save a whole lot of money. You know, it's a really sort of glib sort of response to real problems that people are facing. But aren't you so. starving in the morning? I like to focus. Really? <laughs> I mean, this guy just passed a bar, so he's in another level. Oh my level gosh! I mean, it's doing something. <laughs> but you know, as a, as, a, as a native New Yorker, okay, I mean, there's nothing better than going to your local diner, get me two eggs over easy. I'll go for the bacon. Maybe I'll try to cut back on the potatoes if I'm trying to be a good. You know, get some tomatoes instead. Yeah, sure. Go go big on breakfast. If you need to cut back, I would say cut back during lunch. Right? I mean, we don't, you could make it from, if you have a good solid breakfast, why not go all the way to early can. evening? Speak for yourself. <laughs> you like no, I, Speak you, for you yourself. You got to cut it somewhere. Jessica, I wake up ravenous. Like, I can't skip breakfast. <laughs> Do you, are you a breakfast skipper? I am not a breakfast skipper. I have to have my smoothie. It is very important to me. <laughs> and I will say this is very bleak advice. Yeah. It is very, I mean, the idea that we are asking the majority of Americans to just skip breakfast, when we know there are people with yachts, when we know there are Jeff Bezos is out there, it is a ridiculous suggestion that most people should just skip breakfast and that's the status quo and it's fine. I think that's insane. And also just, I mean, not to take it too seriously, but, you know, income inequality is a huge issue. There are people who do have to skip meals in order to survive. But the idea that this should just be general advice we're giving out is, I, I can't understand it. Jeff Bezos should buy us all breakfast. <laughs> and, like, and I mean the whole country. And lunch and dinner. The whole country. Jeff Bezos bought Whole Foods and then organized for it to be delivered to our houses. Okay? <laughs> so, so he is facilitating our ability to have eggs in our house. At a certain cost. I mean, they are really expensive, but here's the good news, and this is very good news for a lot of people. Bacon is down. Bacon <laughs> is down news. 4%, yep. particularly for you, Patrick, because yeah, like are you it. on some sort of keto madness? Well, I'm trying, Allison. You know, I'm making the effort. How much okay. bacon do you consume a day? Well, I try, I try to keep more eggs, which I think you, is a great source of protein and probably arguably cheaper than buying chicken and meat. But and have so, you noticed how much more expensive they are than last year? I have noticed that a lot. And that's why I'm trying to spread them out over the course of the day and maybe cut back on the meat intake. Well, no. Now you should just eat bacon. That's what I love. <laughs> I, I knew there was a reason I came here tonight. <laughs> yeah. 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 Dr. Camerata. Thank you. He says Thank you, eat bacon. I mean, bacon, that's like, that's a gift from heaven that we're all going to be able to have cheaper bacon. Who doesn't, who isn't excited about that? Um, no, but I mean, obviously it's a real problem. People uh, grocery shopping are seeing the food yes. price spikes, but I don't know when that's going to turn around. 
because, you know, we keep hearing that inflation is being tackled, but somehow the eggs haven't caught up to that. Well, the eggs, to be clear, I mean, eggs are up 70%. Everything else is up between 10 and 15%. The reason is also there's an avian influenza in the egg industry, and there's also a lot of demand on eggs because other proteins are more expensive. So there's multiple uh, crosshair or crosswinds happening with the egg pricing. But I think we're also seeing sort of this frame is you should stop eating breakfast. I mean, ma- massive corporate conglomerates could also contribute by not price gouging. And I think, you know, we're seeing sort of that frame of millennials stop buying coffee and avocado toast and everything will be solved. But really, it's much more complicated than that. You mean if millennials don't stop buying avocado toast, not, nothing, not everything will just shut down <laughs> into a grinding halt? I'm willing to try. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. All right, friends, thank you so much. It is breakfast time now, so we can all just move on and go have breakfast. <laughs> thank you all for watching. Really appreciate it. See you tomorrow night. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.